Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. When you are attached to the way things are, it is very difficult to put your faith in anything else. You do not trust yourself to risk experiencing anything other than what you already know. You do not trust life to bring you the results or the rewards that you desire. You do not trust that you can and will handle whatever comes your way. Without trust, there can be no faith. Without faith, you will hold on to what you know. In the process, you will not be making any progress. Attachment is another way of saying, I don't have faith in anything else. I know what this is. I can handle this. You want to control your experiences and your responses. You see, rather than fight with you for control, life will send you into the pit of stagnation. This can be extremely painful. Attachment reflects a lack of faith in your ability to learn. Learning takes place three ways. You learn by force, you learn by choice, you learn by being forced to make a choice. When you are attached to what you know or what you can control, chances are you will be forced to make a choice. You can choose to stay attached and be stagnated in pain and confusion, or you can let go in faith that your next experience will be exactly what you need but did not know you needed. Until today, you may have been holding on attached to the way things are. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair helps you open your heart to the possibility that there is something great waiting for you. Here is where you can be comfortable to let go of anything or anyone you are attached to, freeing you in faith so that you will be pleasantly surprised. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us stretch faith beyond what we know to a greater and grander experience of becoming faith-filled and fear-free. How are you You're today? You're saying my faith is stretchy? I didn't know that. We stretch our faith every now and then. You know, some circumstances in life challenge faith. But when we depend upon God's presence in our lives, faith is stretched so that we're able to handle anything that comes our way, don't you think? Well, far be for me to argue with that. As we record this program, it's snowing. You must like the snow, do you not? No, I don't like it at all. I like to look at it for about 10 minutes. And that's it. That's it. You know, I'm, I'm with you. I did do a little bit of shoveling today, and it's very, very heavy because it's wet snow, too. So that makes it difficult. In any case, today is the start of Act Happy Week. Many celebrate the day by spending it with happy people, acting like an optimist, performing an act of kindness for someone, practicing gratitude, smiling on purpose. This week also holds the International Day of Happiness, which is recognized tomorrow. Now, after three years of the coronavirus, happiness for many people seems to be a fleeing commodity. Perhaps there's something to this Act Happy Week. Any thoughts? Well, of course... Uh acting happy and being happy are two different things. And, of course, uh, you won't be surprised if I say that Jesus says that, uh, you know, if we believe in him, he will give us the joy that no one can take from us. So happiness is not just about, you know, some kind of external things, although it expresses itself that way and there are happy things that happen. 
but it's something deep within a person. And when you're spiritually uh, unsettled, when there's a malaise that people have spiritually, that often makes them very unhappy. And uh, that's sad because it's unnecessary. Whatever happens in life, uh, whatever befalls us, if we have faith in God, if we have a relationship with Jesus, if we take up our cross every day and follow him in that way, then we find a happiness that no one can take from us. And don't you agree, though, that, that even in times of, of sadness, if you wear that sadness around other people, that can be communicated to others, and you bring them down. And, and I think the opposite is true as well. If you are outwardly happy, you can transmit or transfer that happiness to other people as well. Well, certainly that's the case. And of course, it's true on a, a purely human psychological level, I suppose you could say. But it's much more profoundly true, and it's and in a rela- certainly in very much in a related uh, way, with the state of one's soul, of, of spir- your spiritual state yeah. of mind, uh, your being as a person, uh, as a person of faith. I mean, I've said it, I, I, sometimes I'm afraid I'm repeating myself too much, but I because I'm sure I've said it many times on this program, but it bears repeating that, you know, so much of our problems that we're facing today are profoundly spiritual problems. They're not just economic and health and all. It's spiritual. Uh, and uh, yet, again, you know, uh, the book of the Apocalypse says that the pain was so great that people bit their tongues, but still they would not repent. And that's a vision that's being fulfilled in our site today, that there's a lot of misery, a lot of suffering, a lot of aimlessness, uh, but people don't necessarily then turn to the remedy, and the remedy is not just social well-being and and money and even uh, psychological or or mental well-being unrelated to the most profound, which is spiritual. And if if, if you don't believe and you don't have a community of faith and you don't practice faith and you, you don't you don't have God in your life, I'm not surprised that people find things very difficult. Speaking of people in our lives, sometimes the saints can make a profound difference in our lives, too, and we model our lives on them. For instance, tomorrow is the Solemnity of St. Joseph, usually celebrated today on March 19th, but has been transferred to tomorrow <laughs> since the Liturgy of Sunday takes precedence today. St. Joseph's Day is a big feast for Italians because in the Middle Ages, God, through St. Joseph's intercession, saved the Sicilians from a very serious drought. So in his honor, the custom is for all to wear red in the same way that green is worn on St. Patrick's Day, and also to eat zapoli, an Italian pastry consisting of deep-fried dough topped with powdered sugar, filled with custard, jelly, or cream. St. Joseph is the patron saint of the Archdiocese of Hartford. So, Archbishop, talk a little bit about the significance of St. Joseph in our lives. Pope Francis and popes before him, too, have written beautiful reflections on St. Joseph. I devoted one of my articles in the, in the Catholic transcript to this, I'm sure, some time ago. But, uh, yeah, I mean, St. Joseph uh, is... Uh, plays such a crucial role in the history of salvation, uh, being the uh, legal guardian uh, of, of Jesus, of the Son of God in this world. And uh, devotion to St. Joseph figures large in the spiritualities and devotions of many countries. And certainly today, when fatherhood is just really being battered left and right, 
I think that uh, St. Joseph becomes even a more important model for Catholic men, Christian men, and especially for young men. And if you want to know how that is, just read the Gospels prayerfully and thoughtfully about what it tells us about what Joseph did and how he lived. And um, so we invoke his intercession not only in our archdiocese, but especially on men, young men, who are struggling to find their way in life uh, or families that are, are um, struggling to, to, to really live a family life in this kind of world. Uh, Joseph's very important. And on Tuesday of this week, the United Nations celebrates International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Racism and intolerance can take various forms, from denying individuals the basic principles of equality to fueling ethnic hatred. Racial and ethnic discrimination occur on a daily basis, sometimes hindering progress for millions of people around the world. Racism in our society is either on the increase or decrease depending on who you talk to and their political agenda. From the Catholic Church's perspective, racism is a sin. Can you explain that, then, Archbishop? Well, the supreme law is charity, uh, and that uh, also uh, a fundamental belief that every single human person is created with equal dignity uh, as a a child of God, uh, and uh, not only worthy, but requiring respect. But people are different, not only about race, but many things, you know, economic uh, level, education, the kind of culture they come from. Uh, And so all of these things come together. And in our sinful world, sometimes this leads people to always look upon whoever's other as being somehow a threat or being inferior or being this or that or the other thing. Uh, But we know that... uh, from the point of view of faith, uh, this is false, and that we we have to find uh, ways, we must always uh, respect the rights and dignity of every per- other person, and we must work in society to ensure that so that we live together in harmony and charity. Do you think that, that racism, there's less racism in our world today than there was, let's say, 50 years ago? Oh, I don't know. I think our country certainly has made great strides. Yeah. Um, uh, to combat racism, you know, ultimately these kinds of things have to do with the the heart of individuals, individual people, and we the, we have to educate and and culturally establish the norm and the and the uh, uh, and the customs and the ways of of ensuring uh, uh, you know the respect for everybody. But people are people were sinful, and so not just in the United States but throughout the world. Uh, there's always a, a temptation to prejudice or to division uh, and those kinds of things or injustice. And, but as people of faith, we have to do better and we have to work to, to uh, uh, remedy that kind of situation. Saturday of this week, we commemorate the Annunciation of the Lord, the day that the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary that she would conceive and give birth to the Son of God. The angel Gabriel told Mary that she had a special role to play in bringing God's Son to his people. What about each of us? Don't we have a similar mission? And and how do we accomplish that mission today, Archbishop? Well, we accomplish it in in, in as much as uh, our life is something that is a gift that we did not create ourselves, and that it's always in relationship to the, the, the loving God who, who created us and who redeems us in Christ. 
And so life is a, meant to be a glorious gift. We're, remember, we're created as eternal beings. We're, we, we, we will never die. We will live forever. But it depends on how we live our life in this world that uh, determines how we're going to live forever. And so we have to make use of all the graces that God gives. We have to turn away from sin and, and believe. We have to, to live a life of faith, hope, and charity with God's help and with trust in his providence. There's another aspect of the Annunciation, too, that is very timely to hear. You know, this is nine months before Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it's about Mary conceiving Christ in her womb the day of the Annunciation and bringing him to birth nine months later. And today, our society, with this abortion mentality and killing of uh, unborn human beings, it's horrific to even contemplate but imagine that uh, Christ being conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, that somehow he could be eradicated, you know, that he could be killed before he was ever born. Uh, you know, what, what Mary conceived at, at the Annunciation was not a clump of cells, but it was the second person of the Blessed Trinity conceived in the flesh in the womb of the Blessed Mother. And so this tremendous reverence we have for the Annunciation and for the mystery of the Incarnation in this way uh, should give us pause about how we treat any person uh, in the womb. Uh, You know, even the visitation where Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth and, uh, you know, John the Baptist in the womb of his mother leaps for joy at the salutation of Mary, uh, that even in the womb John the Baptist is registering this reaction Again, all this is revelation inspired by God and the scriptures to remind us of very fundamental truths that we are at risk of forgetting or violating today. Let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, drawn from some of his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's general audience, delivered on February 1st of 2017, and is called, Only the Poor Really Know Hope. The Pope says, When a woman realizes she is pregnant, every day is filled with waiting, waiting to see her child for the first time. This is how we should live, in the expectation of seeing the Lord, of encountering the Lord. It is not easy, but you can learn to live with anticipation. To hope means to have a humble heart, a poor heart. Only a poor man truly knows how to wait. A man who is full of himself, full of his achievements and his possessions, does not know how to place his trust in anyone other than himself. Archbishop, your thoughts. Well, these words of the Holy Father uh, dovetail with what I, we, I was saying a moment ago right, yeah. about, uh, you know, about waiting uh, and the expectation of seeing uh, the Lord, of encountering the Lord, of waiting to see a child for the first time who's been conceived, that it really is a child in the womb. The larger thing that the Pope is speaking about is hope in general. And uh you know, that reminds me of something that another pope said, the late Pope Benedict, in one of his, he wrote the letter Space Salvi on Christian hope. And he said, you know, have we really come to the point today where people really don't hope in anything beyond this life? That they hope for, they have expectations about success or happiness in this world, and they're not really interested anymore in hoping for a life beyond. And if that's the case, which I think the pope was saying is true, increasingly true of people, then we really are to be pitied, you know, that 
if that's the extent of our hope, uh, we really are to be pitied because a human being uh, and what we were created for is so much greater, so very, very much greater. And so we all had to have to be people of a deep hope, not just in the things of this world, but in the things of the world to come. Let's take a look now at our gospel message for this fourth Sunday of Lent, the 19th day of March. Today's reading is from John's Gospel, the ninth chapter. And after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from his birth. He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? It is he. No, but he is like him. But the beggar said, I am the man. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He is a prophet. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You have seen him, and it is he who speaks to you. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this, and they said to him, Are we also blind? If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So, Archbishop, what are your thoughts as we hear this, this gospel? Well, it's a very long and very beautiful, beautiful gospel from St. John, uh, and very fitting for Lent about the meaning of true blindness, that what's being contrasted here is the physical inability to see, physical blindness, that Jesus can cure from the uh, spiritual blindness of the uh, Pharisees who are incapable of recognizing what is happening before their very own eyes through the life and ministry of our Lord. And uh, I, I think it's really, it's a parable for all times, but especially for our time, you know, that uh, Jesus says, because you say you can see, you're blind. But if you acknowledge that you were blind, you know, I could heal you and you would, you would have your sight. He's obviously talking about more than physical sight. He's talking about that ability to see beyond this world, to, be, to see the things that are of God and that endure forever. So Lent, it's a Lenten gospel to make us appreciate uh, that we need to purify our sight, that we need to, to really see what's there. And if we look and see what's there, it's not just the things of this world, but something far deeper. And we have to look beyond, well, in the, uh, to, to Jesus himself, to all appearances in his earthly ministry, he was a man like others. 
but he called people to faith and he performed signs that and and if they open their hearts to the grace that was being given to them to acknowledge him for what he, and who he truly was and the same thing is true of us you know the same thing is happening today every time we go to mass and the priest holds up the host in front of us and says the body of christ we need the eyes of faith to recognize on the basis of all that jesus told us and left us that this is not bread anymore it's Christ, it's his flesh, and that requires the eyes of faith. But if we don't cultivate faith, if we don't ask for it, if we don't accept it, then it's just another piece of bread. So we always have to pray for the gift of faith to see what is really there, uh, not just in the Eucharist, but in our life and the world, and not only pray for it, but we have to strive for that, uh, to live that way. What do you find most disappointing about the reaction of the Pharisees to this man's healing? Well, disappointment. I mean, they they were they were really were blind. I mean, can you imagine a guy who was born blind suddenly can see perfectly after Jesus uh, does what he what he did, and they're so hard-hearted, so hateful toward him, so unwilling to acknowledge what's happening before their very eyes that they're just lost. And I hate to say it, but, you know, there's so many people like that today. They're just lost. They refuse to see the truth, you know. They just, uh, God gives us the grace of the gift of faith. He's always calling every person. It's God, God desire that everyone come to the knowledge of the truth. And yet the tr- horrific blindness. Or you look in our society today, the root causes of so much misery for lack of religious faith, for lack of God, for lack of of uh, obeying the moral law, or even acknowledging that there is such a thing as absolute truth, uh, and the misery everywhere, and yet people would rather uh, suffer than than acknowledge the, the the truth. So this is a very tragic, sad situation, and we who do believe have to be a light. We have to be instruments of trying to bring people to see the light and to open their eyes to see the truth of God. It seems that even God cannot cure that kind of blindness when you deliberately are closed to the truth. Well, we have free will. If, if you, I mean, that's the, that is at the very foundation of our being created in the image and likeness of God. We can refuse, we can reject, and uh, many are they who do so. Let's take a look at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. For instance, Kristen from West Haven says, I have been reflecting on the profound meaning of various parts of the Mass and how they are meant to impact our lives. Some moments that come to mind are the consecration, communion, and the readings of Scripture. What is the most important moment of the Mass? Well, first of all, Kristen, uh, yes, the Mass has always consisted of two parts— the liturgy of the Word, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. And it is our belief, you know, we talk about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We can also talk about the real presence of Christ in his Word. When the readings are read to us, the gospel is read to us, it is Christ who is speaking to us spiritually, personally, when we have ears to hear and we open our hearts to receive what he wants to say to us. But the Eucharist, the second part of the Mass, uh, the, the liturgy uh, of, the, of the Eucharist, here that takes on even a more uh, dramatic, uh, miraculous form uh, in as much as uh, what Jesus did at the Last Supper, 
uh, and the whole mystery of his death and resurrection uh, is uh, fulfilled in the consecration of bread and wine that are no longer bread and wine but become his body and blood. So uh, the most important, I would say the high point of the Mass, of these presences of Christ, is the Eucharistic sacrifice. Uh, in other words, whenever Mass is celebrated, when the priest then receives the consecrated host and, and drinks the consecrated wine, which are now the body and blood of Christ, to use a traditional phrase that confects the sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice at the Mass. And then when we all receive communion, we participate in that Eucharistic sacrifice. So um, what is the most important moment? They're all important, but I think you could say that the, it's brought to completion in the reception of Holy Communion. That's when the Mass, you know, uh, and, and of course, it is done by the priest. Uh, that is why when a priest offers Mass or can celebrates a Mass, he, he must receive both uh, forms of the Eucharist. He must receive the host from the host and from the chalice uh, to, to, to complete the sacrifice of the Mass. And uh, those who participate, now sometimes people don't go to communion or they only receive under one form. That doesn't mean anything for because uh, Christ is truly present in both. But uh, I would say that, uh, you know, in complete, when the Mass is complete, that's uh, the most important uh, moment. Charlie from Waterbury says, I am struggling to keep my Lenten sacrifices. If I gave something up for Lent and then do it a few times anyway, is that a sin? Or is that just a mess up and I can start over more strongly committed the next day? Should I go to confession if I knowingly failed in giving something up perfectly? No, Charlie, I don't think you need to confess such a thing. It's simply making a resolution to either do some good or to avoid some evil or to uh, discipline yourself by giving up something that is good. And in these resolutions, uh, we sometimes don't keep them as perfectly as we should. And when we fail, we get up and keep trying. But I, I wouldn't call keeping a Lenten resolution, failing to keep a Lenten resolution like that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a sin. But don't give up on it. If you fail, Oh, no, no, of course it, right? not, no. Okay. Adam from Norfolk says, while reciting the Our Father during Mass, my family holds hands. Some say we should not be holding hands in the congregation while reciting the Lord's Prayer because it is not a community prayer, but a prayer to Our Father. I've been told that since the Vatican has not specifically addressed it, then we are free to do as we please, either hold hands or not. What is the true Roman Catholic way in which to recite the Lord's Prayer during Mass? Well, Adam, these things developed after the Second Vatican Council. Different things were suggested or requested of people, not as an official part of the liturgy, but as an attempt to make it more communal and more, uh, you know, personal, uh, I guess you could say, but principally communal. So this practice of holding hands started. It's not at all part of the liturgy of the church. And I would I would say it would be wrong to impose this on someone, to say you have to hold your hands while you're, you're at Mass, because that's not asked of them. But if individual families have the custom of doing that, or people in groups um, want to do that, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. So when you say, what's the true Roman Catholic way? I don't think there is a true Roman Catholic way. There is a, a proper way at Mass that that doesn't call for that. Uh, and, and in private prayer, there would be nothing contrary to Roman Catholic practice if people did that. 
But it's a more, for us anyway, it's a more recent kind of innovation, I think. Leah from Granby says, two state legislatures are considering ending any legal protections for a priest who learns about sexual abuse in the confessional. In response, Catholic leaders warned that the laws are unconstitutional, put priests in legal jeopardy, and endanger confidentiality with penitents. Bills in Delaware and Vermont, if passed into law, would break the seal of confession and require priests to report what the penitent says. The Diocese of Wilmington said, The sacrament of confession and its seal is a fundamental aspect of the Church's theology and is non-negotiable. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's not just a matter, Leah, of having thoughts. What the Diocese of Wellington said is absolutely true, and that's what I, I live by. And what did they say? The sacrament of confession and its seal is a fundamental aspect of the Church's theology and is non-negotiable. So that's, the, and that's true. And I think every priest realizes that, and every priest lives by that, and is willing to stand up against any threat against it, wouldn't you say? Yes. Archbishop, I think we've come to the end of our time together, uh, so if you could close the program with a prayer and a blessing, I'd appreciate it. Lord, as uh, time passes quickly and we draw ever closer to the celebration of Holy Week and Easter, we ask for the grace to redouble our efforts to be faithful to our Lenten resolutions of prayer, penance, and charity, and we ask you to help us to always strive to grow in our love and friendship with you and for our neighbor. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to being with you again soon. And until then, enjoy this week. Thank you. Thank you.